0: Our text this morning is Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 57 through 80, so we have the context, but our focus will be on verses 67 to 80, or Zechariah's Song, as it says in the Bible, Zechariah's Prophecy. That can be found on page 1089 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Lord, as we turn to your word and specifically to a text of praise for redemption, of praise for what you will do and have done in the visitation of your son to your people and of the herald who would prepare the way in John, we are reminded of your great acts that have taken place in history. These acts, these things occurred, they're not myths. They're not just fairy tales. This is as real as any, the history of our salvation. We ask, Lord, that we would respond in praise and thanksgiving, seeing the wonders of your word of revelation, seeing the wonders of who you are. May we be affected by what we've heard so much. May you open our hearts to words we've heard before of your tender-hearted compassion and care for your people, but may it strike us anew and in greater depth to see it displayed here in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This ends the reading of God's word. People of God, a good story or an epic tale is hard to write. It's hard to plan out. How do you bring all of the pieces together? And as any great author will do in writing a story, what they have to do is provide a context. They have to provide a history so that there's depth to what will occur and generally these authors have a climactic moment or moments in their mind and this is their goal, this is where they're heading, they're trying to reach this point and then most of the story is building up to that point. And if we could call it this, most of the story is in that sense filler material and what I mean by filler material is it's all intended to lay the table for what's going to take place. And authors will at times provide their own vocabulary, a new language, precursors to that event, even people that might prefigure what is going to happen, all for the purpose so that when the moment comes, they even have language in which to describe it. They have references that they can tie to. And what does this do? It fills out what the Lord is accomplishing. It fills out in the grand story of redemption exactly what's going on. You see... All of the Old Testament is laying the table. And we saw this last time when we looked at Mary's song. We see that again in Zechariah's song, where there's so much allusions to Old Testament imagery. They're looking back to what the Lord has done. They're using terms that describe the Messiah. They're using terms that have rich Old Testament usage, all to provide emphasis to this grand moment that is taking place. That's how a grand story is written, and that is how the greatest author of all, our Lord, has written this story. Everything has been put in place, all for the purpose to highlight this moment, the moment of redemption. And this moment is a moment that did not just end with Christ, it's the moment that continues. You see, the moment of Christ's coming is deliverance for all. And so we live in this climactic moment that they're describing. This song has a very easy structure to see. Mary's song, if you remember last time, began with her personal praise and then turned to a corporate praise for the praise of the people. Zechariah reverses it, and he rather begins with more of a corporate praise for what the Messiah's coming means to all, and then turns more to a personal praise of what his own son, John, will do. You could say that Zechariah's song is in one sense a response to the people's own question. You see this if you look at the context, verse 66, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, these words, and saying, what then will this child be? This is what the people are saying about John. They've witnessed these events. They witnessed Zechariah, who's been mute up until this point. He hasn't been able to talk ever since the angel visited him in the temple, and they're trying to name this child, and both the mother and father say, no, name him, call him John. And then all of a sudden his muteness is removed, and Zechariah begins to praise and bless the Lord, and they marvel at what's taking place what will this child be? What what is he? Who is he? And so Zechariah's song is, in one sense, a response to that very question. It is explaining through song and through praise who John will be, but you see so much of it, and this is just true of John himself as the herald of the one to come, so much of Zechariah's song is all about the Messiah. It's all about what's happening because Zechariah knows that his son is the herald the herald to declare that these things are coming, that the Messiah himself has come. We see then that verses 76 to 79 are an answer to what has just happened in the narrative and who will this child be. And Zechariah's first portion provides that groundwork and shows how grand it is. How do we put this? How do we understand just how climactic an event this is to these people? what they're hearing. The Christmas story is well known to us, but it wasn't well known to them. They were living it. And they are receiving the messengers of God, angels who are declaring these things. They're seeing wonders performed upon them themselves. Mutinous, he can't even talk, and it's removed with his obedience in naming John as the angel had told him. There's all these great things taking place. What do we compare this to? The only way I think we can understand how great this is, is is it's like if we right now began hearing the trumpets of judgment in the last day. The only way to compare the, the grandeur of the first coming of Christ is to look at the second coming and think, if we were to right now hear the trumpets of God declaring that the end has come and see him descending on the clouds, perhaps we start to understand what these Old Testament saints saw And we're experiencing, thinking the Messiah has indeed come. This shows the depth of their songs and why they praise the Lord in this way. We see that in the imagery in verses 68 to 75, where Zechariah describes who will come a horn of salvation. And that's our first point this morning, a horn of salvation. Verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people there's a lot here, and we're going to look at all these imagery in each of these verses of Old Testament tie-ins and what Zechariah is doing. The visitation of the Lord has an Old Testament counterpart in Genesis fifty twenty-four. Joseph. We're going way back to the time of Joseph. Joseph had promised his brothers that the Lord, and he uses this term, that the Lord would visit them and bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land of promise. And so the visitation of the Lord came with redemption for the Lord to visit his people in this way was to them to bring them out of slavery. That's what he did in the first exodus. And Zechariah is talking about the Lord coming again to visit, and he even says to visit to redeem his people. When the Lord visits and comes, there's freedom that springs forth. It did it in the Old Testament. It happened in the exodus. It happened in the exile. It's happening now. The visitation will come with redemption, a ransoming, a true exodus. The greatest redemptive moment in history was the exodus and was the exile and bringing back. That's what the saints always referred in redemption and deliverance. But here is a greater one, a greater visitation, and it's all in two children, a herald and an unborn Messiah. This is in Zechariah's mind. He sees this. He knows this. That's the might of this. The visitation of the Lord is here. It's in Mary's womb. He comes to redeem, and his own son will prepare the way. Verse 69. Verse 69 says, "...and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David." This is messianic imagery a horn is a picture of power and strength. The reference to this horn of salvation is drawn from the Old Testament, and the likely beginning and picture of that is like of an ox, of a powerful animal that has horns on its head with all this strength, and with that mighty weapon and that mighty horn and power, it's able to defend, it's able to drive off. Predators cannot come and take away because of the might of this horn. It's power, it's strength. For an animal that has its horn, that's its power. And so a horn of salvation refers to that even in its imagery. It's the power and might to defend, to deliver. Well, this is, this is broadened in the Old Testament. It also became used and, and was used for a warrior, for a warrior in battle who was skillful and mighty. It symbolized presence and power. This imagery of horn of salvation also was used in Second Samuel 22, verse 3 to apply to God himself. Second Samuel 22, verse 3 says, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. In the Old Testament, this imagery applied to God was generally used to describe some sort of regal figure, some sort of powerful man. And then the horn was also used for the Davidic house. We see that here in Zechariah's own words. But we see it in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. Here's the Old Testament counterpart. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10 says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Exalt the horn of his anointed, the power to save, strength. This is what Zechariah sees. This is who's coming to visit them. The incarnation of deliverance and power seen in the messianic imagery to the house of David itself, a horn of deliverance. Zechariah, to say that, describes the power and the salvation and the might of the Messiah as he comes. Brothers and sisters, we have a horn of salvation. We have one to deliver with strength and power against our adversaries to deliver us from all of our enemies. And we need to think of our Messiah in this way more because we have hinged all on him. Our very life, our very salvation is attached to Jesus Christ himself. And what we see Zechariah describe the Messiah as is this delivering, powerful, warrior, regal figure of David who comes to deliver with power and might. Remember in Daniel book of Daniel, there's a dream that comes to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this dream is of a statue. And the statue is of the powerful empires, there's the different substances and metals that comprise the various segments of this statue. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and what he sees in this dream is, as the statue stands there, this impressive, powerful statue, there's a rock that's cut from a mountain. By no human hand is what the dream shows. That's what's even described there. By no human hand, this rock is cut from a mountain, and it descends and tumbles down and crushes the the statue. It obliterates it. The statue that signified the might of the kings and the empires of the world those who would rule the known world. That's what the statue signified. And yet this rock crushes it. And in Daniel 2.44, Daniel says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the coming of that rock that crushes the empires. This is the horn of salvation that destroys all enemies, that begins a kingdom even in their midst, that obliterates their power. The Lord Jesus Christ, the shield and protector, our shield and protector, our mighty advocate. We need to feast on this imagery. Zechariah was so excited, so joyful to bring praise of deliverance and of the power of the Lord to come, to come to visit his people. Do you see the the joining and marrying of power and deliverance and strength and such a fearful character with a visitation of redemption to the people of God? You see, the visitation of the Lord of this power that will instill fear into the world itself doesn't bring that fear. In fact, Zechariah will say in his song that we are delivered to come without fear to the Lord. His visitation is to us a grand event, and to think of him in this power is the way we ought to conceive of what Christ did. Verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is what the Messiah is doing, saving from our all our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. He's delivered his people and has transformed them into a kingdom that will spread throughout the world, will overcome all. And the horn is from this house of David in Mary's own room. And the broad designation, look how broad the deliverance is. It comes from all who count us as enemies. He saves his people from all enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Total deliverance. Is is that spiritual? Is that the devil? Is that worldly powers? And the answer is, you bet, it's a course. Delivering us from all of these. Total redemption. All who hate us, all those who oppress the people, he will deliver. You might ask yourself this question. Some will say, now, they, Zechariah, Mary, before him in these songs, they, they couldn't have understood all of this. They couldn't have understood truly what Christ would do, could they? Some might even ask, just how much? How much did they understand? I, think, I don't think we should say that they had a clear understanding of everything. Certainly not. John himself would at one point in his ministry say to Christ, are you the one, or is there another one to come? You see, Jesus didn't come in the way they all expected. But what about their song here? How much do they understand? I think, just as I said last time, the way to understand what they knew is to think in the terms of Exodus and the terms of deliverance. When you think of the deliverance of Exodus and exile, was it political deliverance or was it spiritual? We talked about this last time. It was both. You couldn't disconnect the one from the other. You see, they saw that deliverance and visitation from the Lord not only delivered them from the oppression of these earthly powers, not only from the nations that held them down... But it was deliverance from idolatry and sin into a promised land. It took cleansing. Even the Passover itself, which they celebrated every year, showed them that they deserved to die. And it was only by the hand of God, only by the blood of that perfect Passover lamb, that they themselves weren't struck down. And so they see their sin here. And you see what Zechariah does is he's describing salvation that is bodily, that is physical, but it's also deliverance of sin. You see that in verse 77. He says it, that the Lord has come to deliver us from this sin. It's a redemption in a total sense. And so they were right on. They did understand what the Messiah's coming meant. It meant redemption, both of sin and of our uncleanness. It meant redemption from the powers that oppress and enslave the people. And in that, they knew and understood, because they understood the exodus. They understood the exile and deliverance from that. Now when Christ came... And did all these things, did they question? Did they think that was not what we expected? I would say absolutely. It wasn't fully what they had anticipated it to look like, but you see they have it understood. They have it right here. They understand what deliverance is. Verses 72 to 75 show it. It says, He comes to show the mercy promised to our fathers. So pause there. The the coming of of the Messiah is one of mercy. The people. And to remember his holy covenant, that's fulfillment. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, this is a direct fulfillment of the covenant made with the beginning of the people of God themselves in Abraham. What is it to do? It's to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's a purpose. There's a perfect purpose for this deliverance that we would serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness, that's a spiritual deliverance, a purification, that now that we are delivered from the oppressive hand of the enemy, we are redeemed, we're forgiven from our sin and able to serve the Lord. That's what the covenant fulfillment is. And in this first portion of the song, Zechariah shows that fulfillment. We don't feed enough. On the magnificence of our Messiah, we don't think enough of this, of how great He is, of what He's accomplishing. Why is that? Perhaps, perhaps to some of us, it's the when we read these stories, we read the Bible, we think, well, we don't really see something so impressive. Is that the case? Did did Jesus' coming fail to deliver what these songs seem to portray? that the conclusion you might look at and think, wow, that was underwhelming. It's sort of like a story or, or a movie or something you're watching, and, and the build-up is tremendous. And then when the conclusion and the climax fails, you're kind of like, well, that was... What a waste! It was a great build-up, and, and the fulfillment wasn't there. Why might we think that? We might think it because... We didn't see as, as much of the glitz and glamour that we would like to. We didn't see as, as much of this messianic horn of salvation showing that power. That's what we might think. But just to correct that and understand that what Christ did in coming to the earth, even in his, his signs, those foretastes, showed his power. He showed power over the natural world itself that responded at his command The seas leapt and stilled at his very word. He commanded power over the food of the earth. He was able to multiply and and fill his people, which gathered all the people to him. He was able to heal sicknesses. And then we start really ramping this up. What was he able to do? He was able to still the demonic forces. We'll get to this later in Luke chapter 8 when there is a man possessed by a legion of demons and this man so filled who couldn't be restrained who would break chains in the power that these demons worked through him comes trembling before Christ, kneels down before him, grovels before him, and begs him to depart. That's the power of Christ. And so how we answer that is what Christ did is every bit as powerful. And what is still to come is every bit the glitz, the glamour, what we desire to see, that is what his coming is. You see, the climax of what he has done not only fulfills, it outdistances what these songs say. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that that this deliverance wasn't as fully by sight as what we might like or even what the Old Testament saints desired in the coming of their Messiah. It wasn't as tangible yet, but was every bit as powerful In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, that's Jesus talking to Satan in his temptation in the wilderness. Listen to how Satan describes himself. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours." Of course, this is a trap. Of course, this is the devil's desire to trip up and destroy the Messiah himself. But look what the devil describes himself as, showing him all of the nations, saying, I will give this to you. So apparently, even in the devil's own mind, this was his to offer. This was his place. He was the ruler of it all. And in Christ's coming, what did Christ do? He tore that guy down. He tore him down. He bound him up. He wrestled the control of the world to himself and to his church and to his kingdom that would begin as that small seed and grow into such a kingdom that couldn't be stopped, that crushes the empires, that destroys all. The climax of redemption and salvation in Christ is grand. We've only seen the portion of it yet. We're, We're still in it. You see, you're, you're not in that story thinking, boy, that failed to deliver. You're in the midst of that moment. And all we have yet to see is the grandeur and victory of Christ. That's the horn of David. His coming is in these two stages, and final judgment awaits. And We need to indulge ourselves in his might. After all, God spent thousands of years... God spent 39 Old Testament books laying the stage just right, raising up figures like Abraham and David, and providing and creating language like the Horn of Salvation, just like an amazing story writer, to show the climax of the coming of his Son. And we see that in our second point in the Herald of Good News. Zechariah turns to this portion in the praise of what God is doing in his very Son, this herald of... He now explains what the birth of John meant. And there is still this Christological slant to everything he's doing. But now he's just in awe of what the Lord is doing through his son, through a couple that shouldn't have had a son. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Remember Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger has come, the way is being prepared. And then look, verse 77. He comes to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. John's message, as he proclaimed it in the Gospels, was one of not overthrow Rome, not this zealot pursuit. What his message was, was repent and believe. The kingdom is coming. Repent. Cleanse yourselves. Be purified. That's how he prepared the way because salvation was coming and this salvation was one of deliverance, their very sins. Clearly, Zechariah understands that to say, or at least in part understands that to say it in verse 77 when he references this salvation that is to come verse 78, we see something very grand. Verse 78 provides the reason why. Why all of this? Why a Messiah? Why powerful coming horn of salvation? Why a herald to prepare the way? Why? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Notice first, it's because of the tender mercy of God. That word tender is trying to translate what is a very rich Hebrew term that really means the guts, the entrails. And that's what was, in, the, in that day and age, they assigned the heart and the seat of emotions and intellect and all these things was to the very guts. to that that portion. Well, so if we could update the language and see what's being said here about the tender mercy of God, it's like the deepest levels of our heartfelt affection. It's the deep-seated emotion and affection of the love that God has for His people. This is why He comes. Let it never be said that God the Father isn't loving and He doesn't love His people until Christ comes. No, He loves so much that He sent His Son. And His coming to us, His people, means that He cares so much for us as to have the deepest levels of who He is, the deepest levels of His emotions, and we're speaking of God in a human way. Obviously, we can't describe what God is and all of His attributes and beings, but the, the Bible presents to us how to speak of Him. And so we speak of the Lord in the deepest levels of His emotions. He loves His people and so visits them delivers them. Jesus Christ would be that perfect expression. We see it in his very ministry. We see it in his very life. Jesus is the one who loved his people, who wept for them, who fed them, and provided for them, who freed them and bled for them and died for them. That's how God expresses this tender-hearted compassion to come himself, to save his people in this way. And then notice the, the imagery of the second half of that verse. It says, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's no accident that many of our Christmas songs, many of Christmas carols, describe a bright light as opposed to darkness, as the shining of the light that dispels darkness, because the, the coming of the Messiah is the sunrise itself. It comes in light and displaces and casts out the work of darkness. All the shadows are removed because it's so bright, and it's, it's a brightness that brings peace. It's a brightness that brings healing. You see, all that had oppressed the world is dispelled with the light, and we know that with the sunrise. The sun rises, and the world glows, and it's bright. This is the coming of the Lord, but it means much more. This is taking up, again, Old Testament imagery, Old Testament messianic imagery. The term translated here as sunrise literally means that which springs up. It's used in the Old Testament on one hand, referring to the branch or sprout that's messianic as well, and it also refers to the rising sun or to the star. We see this in Numbers twenty four seventeen. We see this in Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read Malachi 4, 1 and 2. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, and that's S-U-N, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The sunrise of God's messianic figure is the one that comes with healing in his wings. Verse 79 shows that we are to understand this as a sunrise, as light that comes. It says the light guiding in the midst of darkness as a beacon from heaven is what this sunrise will do. The imagery, then, is of a Davidic Messiah. This is what we see in the psalm, a Davidic Messiah, an answer to the covenant with Abraham, who comes as a shoot from Jesse, as a star from Jacob, who visits from on high, whose coming is like the sunrise itself to be the visitation and dwelling of God with men. Amazing. How epic this moment, how grand. Jesus is the way of truth and light. Coming in the direction where deliverance in the Old Testament always came from the east, where the sun rises to deliver the people. Romans 13, verse 12 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Night is hard, it's difficult. I'm taking some of the imagery of the text and, and giving us a different illustration of it. But the world was plunged in darkness. The world needed light. And to illustrate just what that is, think of your own nights. Night can be very difficult. You can't sleep. Stresses overwhelm you. You're burdened. And perhaps you've had those nights where you know there's no back to sleep. And all, you are, all you're doing is laying there waiting for the sun. And as you lay there and just count the minutes and thoughts keep coming and you're, you're overwhelmed with all these things, you, you notice along the shade, along the outline of the shade or curtain, there's, there's, it's glowing. The light has come. And you could say, thank goodness. The light's here. The night's done. The day is at hand. That's one side of the night. That's one side of the difficulty. And in that way, illustrating it, that is like what's happening here. This dark period, the darkness that has been shining, is dispelled because the sun has risen. And I mean the sun in both ways. The S-U-N sun, that brings light. The S-O-N sun, that brings redemption. But there's another way that the the night can seem long. At this time of year, we might be able to, and especially the younger members, the children might be able to uh, relate to this very well, When you're excited about something, and you're really excited for what the day might bring, the night seems so long, and you wait with anticipation for the sun to rise because you're so excited about what that rise means, that's the coming of Christ. That's what we see in Mary's song. That's what we see in Zechariah's song, excitement because the day is here Everything we were waiting for has come. With the Messiah himself comes deliverance. And how do we respond? There's two responses, and they're very closely related either worship or belief. Now, it takes believing to worship. What I mean is if you are a true believer, your response to this is worship, is awe, is praise. His greater belief, yes, but you express the belief you already have in praise and worship. Now the response for belief is to those who may not believe. To those who haven't professed faith. And the response to such a message, to such news of this coming Messiah, is to believe it. Is to not look at the coming of the light like, "Days here. That's nice but to look on it either as the deliverance you've waited for or the the excitement of the Messiah that you've longed for. That's what Zechariah's song means. That's what we pray. That's why we worship. That's why we celebrate the coming of Christ. It's deliverance. John's birth heralds the horn of our salvation who brings us deliverance. And what does the text end with? Peace. Peace. all-encompassing peace. That's what our Messiah brings. Let's pray and thank him and worship his name. Father in heaven and Lord Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to offer this prayer of praise and thanksgiving to this great song, a song rich in meaning, a song designed to produce in your people a awe of what you're doing, a thanksgiving in deliverance, wonder at what you've done and belief. And we ask, Lord, that this would change our life, that this would continue to develop and that our great excitement, our great joy would be to know what the light has brought, that the kingdom has come with the dawning of the king himself, our Lord Jesus, and we praise your name. We ask that we would think of you in these grand terms because it's every bit truth. We pray that it would give to us strength to continue to stand in faith. We ask this in your name.